1 Samuel 17, verse 3. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. It's a simple statement. It's a simple description of a particular geographical location. And yet so much is at stake. So much is going on here. Let me take you back about 3,000 years. It's about 1,023 B.C. And there's a giant and there's a young man. The young man is about 17, 18 years of age and he is just a shepherd boy. Hasn't had a lot of responsibility in life other than taking care of his flock. The giant, some people say, looking at ancient texts that he was six feet nine inches tall. I've stood with someone who is six feet nine inches tall and it's, it's pretty tall. Some say he's closer to eight or nine feet tall and then you put a, a big helmet on him and he's gonna look 10 feet tall. He's just huge. Let me take you back to that time. The king ducked his head, shuffled outside his tent and stared at the far hill that lay just outside his war camp. His breakfast settled in an uneasy stomach. All over the valley, the clank of cooking pots could be heard as men lit fires and munched on bread and cheese. It wouldn't be long now until the shouter's voice came again. The king let out a deep sigh. How many days does this make, he asked his aide. Forty, sir, came the reply. Forty. A ring of guards stood watch around the king's tent. The aide didn't, needn't have bothered answering, except his life depended on giving the correct answer to the king. But both the aide and the king knew that King Saul was already aware of the number, 40 days. Can you see him coming, the king asked. The aide squinted, shaded his brow, and nodded. Right on time, sir, the king grumbled as he slipped into his royal robes, then went silent. His shoulders slumped. You, you, boomed a loud voice from across the valley. Why don't you line up for battle today or are you still too afraid? All the soldiers in the Israelite camp turned to watch, many trembling. The taunt was nothing new, but the soldiers took no action. They received no commands. There were no orders to follow. There were no volunteers. They couldn't turn their eyes away, however, and they hated who stood in front of them but none of them were brave enough to try and stop him. The shouter, this shouter was a brute of a man, hairy and ugly and foul, scarred and weathered from a hundred previous battles. A bronze helmet rested on his head. A massive coat of scale armor covered his body. Bronze plates protected his legs. A bronze javelin was slung on his back. The shouter gripped a spear shaft thicker than a weaver's rod, and his shield-bearer stood before him, grinning as he relished the fight. With that amount of armor on the brute, the archers likely wouldn't be able to penetrate his defenses. And with an entire army behind him, swordsmen couldn't rush him, spearmen and charioteers couldn't get close enough before they would be wiped out. The giant was impenetrable, undefeatable, and no one knew that better than the giant himself. You bunch of cowards! The giant called forth, Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of King Saul? 
Let's have a contest for men. Same one I proposed yesterday. You choose a man. We'll choose a man. The two men will fight. Whoever wins the battle wins the war. I'll be the man for our side. Who do you have on yours? He laughed long and loud. The giant already knew the answer. No one was going to stand up to him. Jeers and catcalls came from the Philistine camp. The aide glanced at King Saul. Sir, any reply today? The aide's voice hinted at the significance of the last word. Today? The king ignored the question. No, there was no reply today. There was no reply yesterday, nor had there been the day before that, nor the day before that. And ever since we went to Sunday school, ever since we went to vacation Bible school, and ever since we've seen this battle played out on TV over and over again, in the movies over and over again, we go back and we see this giant of a man, and we see this small shepherd boy, and we wonder and we marvel at the story. And the story resonates in our souls because we all have giants, and we know we need to take the giants down. David had gone out. David had been sent with it by his father to go to his brothers who were part of King Saul's army. David had 10 loaves of bread with him. He had 10 big cheeses with him. He sounds like he was the beginning of a, of a Jimmy John's franchise. Uh, he was just going out there to make sandwiches and, and feed some of the guys. You know? And then he caught, he caught this sense of urgency. He kind of knew what was before him. And somehow, somehow, he didn't see Goliath. He saw past Goliath in some deeply spiritual way. He saw past Goliath. And in, in 1 Samuel 17, and I encourage you to read the chapter. It's still a great story to read even today. In verse 45, we read, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. You have all the accoutrements of war and power, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You have power. You have political prestige. You have a loud voice. But I have a name, and I can see through you, and I can see past you. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down. So David triumphed over the Philistine, over Goliath, with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Sooner or later it happens. You're standing there and you're facing a giant. Might be a relational giant. Might be a business giant. Sears just faced its final giant. Might be some kind of giant from the future that asks you questions that you just don't have the answer to right now. Giants are as real today as they've ever been. Everyone faces Goliath. Giants taunt. Giants flaunt. Giants try to steal your motivation. Giants try to 
confuse and confound and corner you. And you know your giant's name. You know your giant's name. But do you know how to bring him down, how to bring it down? You won't get through life without taking a few giants down. None of us get through life without a few giants that must go down. So right now, I want you to get a picture of your giant and put it right in front of your eyes. Get that picture of what your giant is right now. Maybe it's relational, maybe it's business, maybe it's something in the future, and put it right in front of your eyes right now. If you're Clayton Kershaw, you see Mookie Betts. Okay, if you're the Dodgers, you see the Red Sox coming at you. Put it in front of your eyes right now. See him, see it. What are you feeling? What are you feeling? You know, every day, every day, not every day, every week, and if I can get out of it, I try to get out of it, but every week when I go to the gym, I face this giant. He always looks me in the eye and he goes, you can't take me. You can't be like I am. And I sit there with my little sling in my hand, with my little time that I have there in the gym, and I try to figure out, now that I'm going on five years, how do I take this guy down? How do I take him on? You know, why is he always you know, taunting me every time I go to the gym? How does the giant go down? Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book. It's a really good book. It's called David and Goliath. And he gives you some amazing insights, especially early in the book, about the David and Goliath story. And I read it, and I like it, and I'd encourage you to read it. Uh, it's a great book, but that's not the book that most kind of knocked me back on my heels. The book that really knocked me back is this book called Goliath Must Fall, Winning the Battle Against Your Giants. And Louis Giglio had, had a huge giant take him down, something that I hope doesn't ever happen to any of us. He tells us about it in his book. But he gives a strategy for how to take the giants down. Goliath must fall, winning the battle against your giants. Giant. So let me teach you about that this morning. Number one, we must remember that faith thrives in discomfort. Faith thrives in situations that are difficult and painful and that just, just look like they're going to knock us down and roll right over us. Giglio writes, in fact, the gospel is rooted in discomfort. Christ's discomfort, the cross brought pain to Jesus. In the same breath, it brought freedom to us. That's an amazing thing to think about. The cross brought pain to Jesus. In the same breath, it brought freedom to us. We are alive because of Christ's discomfort. This is our story. People ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to put our faith in the work of Jesus. What is the work of Jesus? that he came to earth, he lived, he was crucified, he was resurrected, he ascended into heaven, he sent the Spirit of God, and he's now living inside of us. This is what we believe, and it all hinges around a very uncomfortable moment. Faith thrives in holy discomfort. Nothing worth having comes without a cost. Nothing worth having comes without a cause. Discomfort asks hard questions. Discomfort asks hard questions. 
And so in that area right now with your giant, in that area right now where your faith is going to be defined by what you see past the giant, your faith is going to be defined by how you see through the giant. Your faith is going to be defined by your actions that you're going to plan out and strategize as you approach the giant. Discomfort asks hard questions. What is my strategy? What do I have to be honest about? Why hasn't this always, why hasn't this ever worked, this, this relational conundrum that I find myself in? What about in business, with the business landscape shifting and changing moment by moment by moment, what do I really need to see that will help me understand how to navigate the waters of change in business? Do I have to totally wipe the slate clean and go in a new direction? Or what about the future? The future, have I planned well enough for the future? Or is the future presenting me something right now that I can't even begin to wrap my head around? There are always these discomforting questions. And not only do they come from outside, but they come from within. And sometimes to be really responsible, we have to ask ourselves the hard questions that need to be asked. And if we can't think of the hard questions that we need to ask ourselves, it's good to go to somebody, someone that we love and someone that we trust and someone we know is on our side and ask, what hard question do you think I really need to answer right now in my life. Maybe you can see something that I can't see. We have to remember to bring the giant down that faith thrives in discomfort and that discomfort asks hard questions. Nothing worth having comes without a cost. Number two, we remember, we have to remember that the point of our lives is the fame of Jesus. That's the point of our lives. It's not about everything that we get to do and everything that we get to, to achieve. Those things are good. I like to achieve. I like to, to, to climb a mountain and to get to the top and to look and see how God has helped me get there. But the point of our lives is the fame of Jesus. On October the 13th, I was reading New York Times as I was sitting on a plane coming back to Norfolk. And I turned the page, and I saw an article that I never expected to see in the New York Times. We need to talk about God. We need to talk about God. And it's the, the, the actual byline somewhere in there is, it's getting harder to talk about God. It's just hard to talk about God in the world in which we live today, in the culture in which we live today. And, and the author of this article, and you can just, just Google, it's getting harder to talk about God. The article will pop up. I encourage you to read it. He says this. More than 70% of Americans identify as Christian. Almost three quarters of our population say we are Christian. But an overwhelming majority of people say they don't feel comfortable speaking about faith. Most of the time, they just don't feel comfortable. 7% of Americans say they talk about spiritual matters regularly. 7% of the 70%, the aggregate number of people in the country who say we're Christian, only 7% say I, I have regular opportunities to talk about my faith. And the reason that is brought up for this is we live in a, a politically correct time. We live in a time when 
when Christians over the last 50 or 60 years have been fairly aggressive in the way that they've tried to present Jesus and the gospel into our society. And with that aggressiveness, something has happened over a period of time because life has changed and culture has shifted. And, and I define it this way. I learned this a long time ago. Language has a distance factor encoded into it. Language has a distance factor encoded into it. And what that means is with words, you either push somebody away or with words, you draw them close. And I see this all the time in my life. Sometimes I'm not thinking and I use words and I push somebody away. I did this at, at Starbucks when I was in the airport uh, about a couple weeks ago. I, I was trying to get you know, my coffee. and I'm, I'm a real stickler. If you don't know this, uh, this, this might not change your life, but I'm a real stickler for how much ice I put in my coffee. I only put in this much, and it's a specific amount just to take the edge off the heat so that I just don't burn my tongue. So I just want this much. And Starbucks can never get it right. I'm praying for Starbucks to get it right, but they just can't. So one thing, they, it's a great company. They do some great things, but they just can't get my ice right. So sometimes I'm there, and, and I say things, and it, it, it pushes the barista person away, and then I feel bad later, and then I have to buy him a new car uh, or do something to make up for it. It's really, it's, but language either pushes people away or it draws them close. So here's, here's what I think can really help in, with this whole idea of it's getting harder to talk about God. I'm going to give you a question. Um, and, and I actually used this just the other day. What do you believe you know for sure is true? It's a good question. What do you believe you know for sure is true? And that's a question that draws somebody in to a moment. What do you believe that you know for sure is true? And then you do a lot of listening. And you listen, and you listen, and you listen, and you listen. And there, there's going to come a point, and it happened to me just the other day, there's going to come a point when somebody feels that you've listened and they've been heard, and they're probably going to say something like this. So what do you think is true? And when that happens, they have now invited you into their life space so that you could say something like, you know, a long time ago, I began a relationship with Jesus Christ that has profoundly changed everything in my life. And that, that draws them into the telling of a story and leads to maybe another question. What is, when you say profoundly, what does that mean? And all of a sudden, we're having a conversation and it's not hard to talk about God because we've allowed some space, we've said some things that draw people into the conversation. So I'm going to challenge you sometime, sometime before Thanksgiving, sometime before Christmas, in some relationship where you know, you know, this, this happened just the other day. I was out to eat with a friend, and he's a big Boston Red Sox fan, and we always go at it with Red Sox and the Yankees. And in the next booth was a guy wearing a Red Sox jersey. And the guy with the Red Sox jersey, uh, you know, was back-to-back -back with my friend. So I went over and I said, would you just stand up and shake hands with my friend? So it would just be a, a Boston moment. It would be like, I love you, man. It would be like one of those moments. And so he did. And, and, and then he sat down. We started talking about the series and talking about the game. This guy kept dropping, uh, you know, 
amazing words into the conversation, words that I don't normally hear, you know, when I'm in conversations around here during the day. Just, just and he gives this boom and boom and boom and boom. And, and I thought, this is a guy that I can ask, what do you believe you know for sure is true? And invite him into the conversation. Or maybe this is a guy that I need to invite to the hoedown. Or maybe this is the guy that I need to go. He said where he, he owns a business in Virginia Beach that has to do with taking care of dogs. And I have dogs. So maybe I can take Bodine Wilson by and introduce him to Bodine Wilson and invite him into the conversation. But the more we do this, we flip the equation. And it's not so hard to talk about God anymore. And we bring down the giants of political correctness and our culture that is just so afraid to say just about anything religious anymore. We remember the point of our lives is the fame of Jesus. Third, we align ourselves with God, with everything that God is, with everything that God does, with everything that God says. I was walking down West Broadway in New York City the other day, and uh, we were going to have dinner with our daughter, Ashley, and I noticed this up on a building, and it says, we are many, we are different, we are ourselves. We are, in fact, incapable of being anyone else. We are free thinkers and free fallers. We are creators and destroyers. We are seekers. We are ripped and torn and sharp and chick. We are a lot. We are not done. We are unique. We are beautiful. Hashtag, we are mankind. And, and that's very creatively written, and it's very you know, thoughtful in a certain way, but when you get to the end of it, it kind of just lays there. Where do, you, where do you go with that? We're all this, and so we're all this, and what am I supposed to do now? It doesn't answer the bigger question of why are we here, and where are we going, and what is God doing with all of us all the time? And the only way you, you get there is by aligning yourselves with God. There's a great book that a friend of mine wrote it's called divine alignment, divine alignment. And to be in divine alignment means when you think, you, you purposely think in this situation, what are the biblical principles? In this situation, how would God come at this little turn of events? In this situation, how can, how can the Holy Spirit show up in me in this meeting? And you start to think in a way that changes the way that the world is perceiving the culture, you start to change the way that the world is perceiving the context. You start to see through the giant, just like David saw through the giant, he saw on the other side of Goliath, and you don't get so wrapped up and I'm trying to somehow fit in, I'm trying to somehow allow the world to, to squeeze me into its mold, which Paul says in Romans 12 just doesn't ever work. We align ourselves with God. And finally, we remember two things. We remember, life is short, God is big. Life is short, God is big. So I go to my 50th high school reunion. That's where I was last weekend up in New Jersey. And, uh, and here I am, here's a shot of me at the reunion, and I'm here with my friend Sam Blum, and Sam lived on the other side of the street, same street, just the other side of Reland Avenue. And he had a, a basketball hoop in his driveway. And he said, remember when we used to play 
basketball games, and he had a big smile on his face. I said, yeah, I remember. And then I had other classmates that I hadn't seen in decades. And, and this one woman was there. Her name was Holly. Here's a picture of Kathleen and Holly. And Holly wanted to be in the sermon. So I said, I'm going to get you in the sermon, Holly. And here's a picture of Holly in high school. And I don't know what Holly was hiding in her hair, but she was always <laughs> hiding, hiding something in her hair. Uh, and here's a picture of Gail and Holly and my friend Rick Escobar, my friend Joe Godoy at, out at 10.30 at night, maybe it's 11 p.m. at one of those New Jersey diners. I always want to eat breakfast at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, and you can't do that here. You can do it in New Jersey on Route 17 in Paramus, New Jersey. So I was having breakfast, and it was, it was just great. It was a fantastic time. But life is short. How did all that time pass? Where, where are we supposed to go with our lives now? Life is short, but God is big. And this is how Louis Giglio puts it. Really, the combination of both of those two small phrases becomes our mission statement for living by faith. Life is short, and God is big. Repeat those two small phrases if you need to. They're huge in meaning and weight. Let them roll through your mind and heart. Life is short. God is big. Life is short. God is big. Do you hear that voice? It's the voice of the giant slayer. It's the voice of the disciple maker. It's the voice of the movement starter who sees what can be and takes a risk. It's the voice of those who impact culture in the name of Christ. It's the voice of the prayer warrior. It's the voice of the compassionate one who sells stuff to provide for the less fortunate. It's the voice of the teacher who pours into students everything she can. It's the voice of those who are salt and light in the entertainment industry, even when it's not the most rewarded choice. It's the voice of the chaplain who cares for the dying with hope and dignity and the gospel. It's the voice of the recovery counselor who refuses to quit. It's the voice of the business leader. It's the voice of the blue-collar worker who does his job as an act of worship. It's the voice of the mother and father who shepherd their kids in a way that inspires them to do great things. It's the voice of the one who speaks to his neighbor about the bigger things in life. It's the voice of anyone who holds doors open that help others to get to Jesus. And then Giglio sort of punches it. I have a deep conviction that the greatest regret any of us will ever know is that of standing before Jesus, knowing we live too safe, too comfortable, too short-sighted. Life is short. God is big. David. He took what he had, and he didn't have much. So don't think anything about not having much. He didn't have much, but he had the most important thing. He had the name. He had the name. He took what he had to do what looked like it couldn't be done. He didn't see Goliath. He saw through Goliath. He saw past Goliath. And there's things right now in this church that we have to see through. And there's things right now in your life that you need to see through. There's things right now in this church that we have to look past. 
And there's things right now in your life that you have to look past because you have a name and you have a power that is greater than yourself that can do something big in the world. Life is short. God is big. David took what he had to do what looked like it couldn't be done. It was an amazing moment. It can be your amazing moment. If you remember, faith thrives in discomfort. If you remember, the point of your life is the fame of Jesus. If you remember to align yourself with everything God is and everything that God thinks, if you remember that life is short, but God is big. So what's your giant? What are you going to do? Are you going to take your giant down? That's the only way the giant comes down because you have a name. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for the confidence to stand with you. We pray for the faith to walk with you. We pray for the vision to see what you see. We pray we can see through that giant. We pray that we can see past that giant individually and as a church, Father. Allow us to, to know that we can do what looks like it can't be done because of who you are, because of your name. In that name, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.